I want to speak this morning for just a few minutes, and I feel, I know the weight of all that's going on and what we're all feeling. And I'm so thankful for God's word and, and his faithfulness in the word that he addresses all situations. And we are not left without instruction, encouragement, teaching from his word this morning. C.S. Lewis said, you never know how much you, believe, you believe anything. Let me say that again. You never know how much you really believe anything until it's truth or falsehood becomes a matter of life or death to you. Genesis chapter 12 is where we will begin and take our text this morning where it's the great promise or challenge to Abraham. God says in verse 1, Now the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family and from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I've taught extensively from this, and I'm not going to break it down except to highlight the fact that this is an enormous challenge. God basically says, Abram, this is before his name is changed because his character is changed and then his name is changed. And then the promise of God comes through his life and we're been a, we, we sit here today because of Abraham's obedience. But I do want to highlight that he says this. He starts by saying, get out. Some translations say, leave. Where you are, you cannot stay. You must go to another place. And God does not tell him where. He says, I will tell you when I get you there. And we are in a place, in a season like that right now. Abraham responded in an act of obedience that literally altered the course of history. But it involved significant risk and courage. Abram didn't have any Jesus calling devotional to encourage him as he was to step out into an uncertain journey and into the great, great, great unknown. This was heroic in every way and it led to a life of faithfulness that has for you and me today set the parameters of how we as God's people are to understand what it is to live a life that is pleasing to God. Later in the New Testament, Paul the Apostle in Romans chapter 4 is, is describing the life of faith, what it is to be a Christian. And he refers back to Abraham, and he uses him as the example. In verse 3 of chapter 4, he says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Later in the same passage in verse 18, he says this, against all hope, Abraham Abraham believed and became the father of many nations. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God. Being fully, hear me, being fully persuaded that God had power, had the power to do what he had promised. How many of you this morning are fully persuaded that God has the power to keep his word? Come on, how many of you believe the truth of God's word and that he has the power to maintain his integrity by committing to his word? Now, this would become, brothers and sisters, hear me, this would become the template for those who would put their faith in God. Later, the disciples, Peter, would be called to follow Jesus and he would leave his boat. Leave it. His livelihood, he would just up and leave it and follow Jesus. Later, he would be in a fearful moment in the midst of a storm and he would leave another boat to get out, to get closer to Jesus by walking on water. We see this as the template of faith. Moses, Daniel, David, 
on and on the list goes of men and women who would put their faith, dangerously so, in God's word. For those of you who were here several years ago, I did a whole series on this word called liminality. You'll remember it. I, I just started before COVID got me, I just started um, a series on the kingdom of God and I was prepared to speak another word. And yesterday morning when I woke up before I came to prayer, the Lord just dropped this back in my spirit and, and redirected me. And so I wanna revisit. I just I want you to just receive because this, there is life in the word this morning. Liminality is a word that you need to be aware of. It's a threshold experience. It is composed of any or a combination of danger, marginality, disorientation, or ordeal. And it tends to create a space that is here, neither here nor there. Liminality is a transitional stage between what was and what is to come. Liminality. It's a threshold. You're not in this room or that one. You're between the two. And in liminality, it's a place of discomfort and agitation that requires us to endure and push into what is to come. And this today is where we find ourselves as a nation and as the people of God. I've just been gone two weeks and the whole the whole world has changed. And we stand. It's hard to believe in 14 days what has happened. It's hard to believe what we are seeing. But we have talked about it and warned our nation and the church for years, for decades, what was going on. And we now stand in a culture of deceit and lies and manipulation, and enormous division. We are hanging by a thread, and we stand at a moment of liminality. Hendrik Kreimer, a German missiologist, says, it is normal for Christians to live in a situation of crisis. Strictly speaking, one ought to say that the church is always in a state of crisis and that its greatest shortcoming is that it is only occasionally aware of it. The church has always needed, quote, apparent failure and suffering in order to become, listen, fully alive to its real nature and mission. Let me be so bold to say this morning that crisis is no bad thing when you're on the Lord's side. In fact, it is necessary for the human spirit to face a desperate crisis which requires prayer that forces you to cry out to God. Anybody know the difference between praying and crying out? We're in a season of crying out, leaning on him with faith, and then experiencing the resurrection power which gives real meaning and true lasting joy to your Christian experience. I believe that the church should be the most alive place in all of culture. I'm not saying it should be the most exciting, the most entertaining place, but it should be the most alive place on the planet because, because of liminality because of being stuck between here and there. It's kind of like when you, you know when you were a kid and you would lean back on a chair and you loved that liminal space where you weren't going that way or this way, you were balanced. And then you lost it and you thought you were going back and you caught yourself and that adrenaline rush is why you continue to do it and get in trouble with your teachers because there was something about, and that's a small picture of where we as believers are caught in a crisis in a world that is full of darkness and we can hide 
or we can venture out into the great unknown. Because of liminality stuck between here and there, we are to be a place that is alive, inconvenienced by a call to go somewhere we've never been, led by someone we can't see except through eyes of faith. And liminality requires these things, courage, adventure, mission, and risk. Liminal seasons, which is the Christian experience on this planet, re requires spirit-born courage. It requires a commitment to adventure and the mission and a willingness to risk when all you have is faith and a promise. And brothers and sisters, this is genuine biblical Christianity. G.K. Chesterton said, an adventure is only an inconvenience rightly considered. An inconvenience is an adventure wrongly considered. Much depends on how we perceive life as threat or opportunity. Now, when our need for security, our love for security becomes obsessive, we remove ourselves from the journey of discipleship, the faith life. Making ourselves ever more secure will not keep the fear of insecurity from becoming a possessive demon. Some of the most fearful people I know have been those who were able to secure themselves in this life the most. We must rediscover biblical Christianity. And at this time, we are. We're being forced to, but we're up for it. And God is faithful. We are pilgrims, strangers, aliens passing through. This world is not our home. To live is Christ. To die is even better. It is gain. Not getting many amens this morning, but I'm okay. I can deal with it. Now, I want to move on. I want to talk about cultivating a holy urgency. Years ago, I read this book. It's called The Faith of Leap. It's one of, by one of my, two of my favorite authors, Michael Frost and Alan Hirsch. I highly recommend it. People ask me what book has touched me the most. I've read books, and I love books. This one touched me deeply, along with Vertical Church, about the time the Lord redirected Candace and I back here a few years ago. Highly recommend it. In the book, it talks about cultivating a holy urgency, and one of the misingredients, James Cotter, the professor of leadership emeritus at Harvard Business School, says in his book, Leading Change, that there are eight necessary steps for bringing significant and lasting change to an organization. And the, I'm not gonna talk about all eight of them. I just, in fact, wanna mention the first one. And he says, listen, the first step is to create a sense of urgency and lace it throughout the organization. Now, that is just golden. Why is that golden? Because we have a divine disruption that's being forced upon us. And I know some of you, even right now, you're hanging in the balance going, Pastor Chuck, have you given up? Where do you think this going? Honestly, right now, I'm so enamored with the word of God and his promises that I love the thrill of just trying to stay balanced right now. I don't care where it goes. I mean, I care, you know I care, but that is beside the point. What I love is, ooh, that there is a, a holy urgency upon the people of God in the American church again. This is like Christmas morning for me. This is a dream that people are awakened on the edge of their seat. This is like 9-11 on steroids. We had... 
two or three Sundays after 9-11, and boof, it was gone, and we went back. And we're now moving into 10 or 11 months of a worldwide whatever it is. And the beauty is our God takes everything and uses it for his good and his kingdom advancement. And he is doing that right now. Creating a holy urgency. According to Cotter, Leaders who are successful in creating a missional urgency will utilize the following behaviors. Number one, they create emotionally compelling experiences. Leaders do that. They speak not just to the head, but to the heart. They have passion and instill passion. Secondly, they model urgency in their own behavior on an ongoing basis because what leader can lead someone to a place where they've never been? Values are caught, not taught. Number three, they look for possibilities in the crises. A useful crisis creates a situation that cannot be resolved by minor tweaks or adjustments, and looking for opportunities in crisis, we know what's happened politically and how things have been manipulated. And I'm not talking about the perversion of that. I'm talking about leaders who are able to understand in every crisis there are enormous possibilities for world-changing breakthroughs. I'm not going to park there, but boy, am I tempted to. Do y'all see it? Fourthly, they confront naysayers effectively. Naysayers are highly skilled urgency killers. And the church is typically filled with them. And what would be the naysayers that we're dealing with as we look at the situation in our world? There's a lot of social media. Almost all the news is a naysayer to you being able to see the hand of God at work in our world right now. You must be selective and eliminate the naysayers that will kill your sense of urgency. And then fifthly, they keep urgency urgent. One Sunday, some of y'all know the story of the last few years here at this church. It was a rebirth of a church that has been faithful for a long time, and many of you have been here through thick and thin since the 80s, some of you longer than that, believe it or not, before this church was even here. When Candace and I came back and we assumed the role of the lead pastor, you can imagine a church that had experienced just a series, a season of years of decline that things had to be changed. And one of the things I noticed was the way we started our church service back then. We said we started at 10.30 and often it was 10.40 or so before we started. And so I changed the starting time till 10.45 and somebody said, why'd you do that? Why'd you change the start of our service to 15 minutes later? And I said, I didn't change the start of the service, I just changed the announced time of the start of the service. And it piqued some people's interest. And so, like, people were here when, we were, when it was time to start the service. And one Sunday, I'll never forget, it was during football season. And our boys have played football. I've coached and played football. And it was a Sunday after a Friday night. And if you've been on a Friday night high school football game... The cheerleaders work, this is, starting the game is a big deal. And cheerleaders work all week long and do this work of art that these dumb football players just run through and destroy it. And they bring out smoke and lights and all this stuff. They didn't do that stuff when I was growing up. And, and it, it's a moment of the parents are standing and, and it's just, it, you just get caught up in it. And I mean, I feel like I could run for 125 yards on a Friday night with the way they do that. And one Sunday, we started, and we were halfway through the second song, and I was like, gag me with a spoon. 
Nobody wants, God doesn't even want to be here. This is no way to start a service. I came up here and I grabbed the microphone. I said, everybody, I'm sorry, but here's what we're going to do. I'm asking everybody to go back out into the parking lot. It was a minute. It was the second song of the worship set. Everybody looked at me like, are you kidding me? I was like, no, I'm not kidding you. We're going to start this right. In fact, I want you to go all the way back out. And then when we open the doors, I want you to come in this place like you're ready to worship. Anybody, were you, anybody here? There are a few of you that decided you would stay if this is the crazy pastor of this church. And something happened from that moment on. We got serious about how we're going to start our worship service of the king. And we created in, in each of us a sense of, I, you may remember, I used to say there may only be 110 people here. You can hear your echo in this building. There were leaks in the roof and weeds in the parking lot. But when we started our worship service in here, there was a sense of urgency. May we never lose our sense of fear of who he is, how awesome. And I'm not talking about being afraid. I'm talking about a reverential fear. And I know I'm in the South and I'm as big a sports fan as most of you. I have passion. And when I'm out at a game and one of my boys is playing, I peg it all the way. But let me tell you something. I never come in here and bring it half cocked. If I'm going to be here on Friday night, I'm going to be here on Sunday morning. And shame on us for bringing God our leftovers. Shame on us for thinking we're a little bit abnormal to bring urgency and passion and commitment and life or death faith into the house of God. There's some things changing that are being forced on us. And one of the things is you better check your pulse. The good news is we have a God who redeems and resurrects and restores and reconciles and revives. And he's bringing a Holy Spirit urgency to the renewal of the American church and restoration's gonna be right in the middle of it if I, if I have anything to do with it. Come on, if you're gonna praise him, praise him like you mean it. We praise you, Lord. When I was um, 1989, I came to this church to be the youth pastor First night, we had 14 kids in the youth group right across the hall. This was the only building on campus. I wasn't from the suburbs. I was from a small town in Virginia. We didn't have much, and everybody, a lot of the kids, you know, it's North Atlanta. They were affluent, and I, I did everything I knew to do. It was my first, I was 23 years old. I'd been here a year and three months and somebody told me, get them out of their element. I was like, okay. Johnny Jackson, old football coach, who was one of our youth volunteers, took me over to Mentone, Alabama. I saw a little, he had me speak for a Fellowship of Christian Athletes retreat, one Memorial Day. I was like, this is cool. So it was Memorial Day. I was like, can we book this same camp for Labor Day? And we took 33 kids, five adults, and getting them out of their environment, something beautiful happened. And I learned something. And I thought, I need to do this more often in more extreme ways. And so I was sitting at a youth specialties conference in Southern California, and I heard Tony Campolo talk about his ministry in Southwest Philadelphia and how... They've, they've taken this old abandoned school building on 51st Street in Southwest Philly. Now, Atlanta's rough. Philly's like, dang rough. <laughs> but I'm sitting there thinking, I wonder if I could get my kids on an admission trip to Philadelphia. And so I, back then, you just dialed 911 or you, and you know, and you've got the number. You couldn't go online and take your cell phone and your smartphone. And so I called and they were like, yeah, 
which week would you like? And so I was like, okay, I know all-star baseball ends usually about mid to late July, and then football starts August 1st. And, and I was like, how about the last, I'm serious. I was like, how about the last weekend and week of July? Long story short, they said yes. Cindy and I, Pastor Cindy, she was a children's pastor. She went with us. And I forget, we took a big group of kids and we had three vans and the kids were packed in there. And we drove into Philadelphia and that was again, we had a, a, an atlas. We didn't have ways. We were like true explorers. We were original missionaries, not all this mamby-pamby smartphone map quest junk. If we couldn't find it, we had to pray and have the Holy Ghost lead us. You think I'm playing? We couldn't find it. It's getting dark on the weekend. And we pull into this little wing store gas station with barred up windows. And I can remember turning around to the kids and telling them, don't anybody get out. And they looked at me like their knuckles had been wired to the seat, like you, I don't know if we'll get out all week. And then that night, we finally found the place. And I remember the guy giving us the orientation. And he said a few things. He said, after dark, do not go outside the barbed wire fence because the freaks come out at night. He said that. He said, even inside the campus, in this old abandoned school building, don't ever go anywhere without a friend. And my kids... All I can remember is parents before I left Roswell Church of God saying, is it safe? And I said, of course it's safe. It's a ministry trip. And I, the kids and I kind of made a deal and we were like, if you won't tell your parents, I won't tell your parents. And the kids were lit up like Christmas trees. And they were like, this is living. We started our first worship service that night, just us doing our nightly devotional. And we go to bed at about 1.30 a.m. Because the power of God started moving and kids' hearts started opening up and they started catching a vision for ministering in the inner city, the rough at-risk culture of Southwest Philly. And I learned a lot that has proved to be effective for me to this day. Some of the things that I learned in watching them and then later, Candace and I would go to Dubai and, and Central America and we would get out of our zone and I would minister cross-culturally and there's some things I learned walking through the Dubai airport. It's against the law to take pictures with your smartphone. After I'm just about two hands handcuffed behind my back. Do you think I ever tried to sneak in another Photoshop picture in the Dubai International Airport? Heck no, I didn't. I don't speak the language. There was a sense of pay attention, urgency that comes over you when you get into an environment that you're not comfortable with. Taking kids and watching adults get stretched by the Holy Spirit. There's a few things I've learned that you should write down. Number one, when that starts happening, people need to get right with God. I didn't even have to give altar calls or tell teenage boys to stay out of trouble in Southwest Philly because they were scared you know what. We're in one of those you know what's. And you'd be foolish right now to not get right with God. Second thing I learned was when you're in a liminal season, you need to stick close to your brothers and sisters. 
It's a lot of strength that comes from being connected with other strong, mature, spiritual men and women. Wish somebody give me a little witness right now to what I'm saying is the truth. That American, I've declared my independence. Satan gets you isolated. Right now is no time to be isolated. No time to be casual about being connected to other believers. The third thing is when you're in a liminal situation, there's a focus that you need to get to reach out to serve lost people. Know when you're in a liminal situation, know your mission. Number four, pay attention. It could cost you your life. Keep your head on a swivel. Number five, follow your leader. Stay close to a shepherd. It's important, not for his or her ego. In fact, if it's about his or her ego, find a new shepherd. But follow a leader. Paul said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Look at me, brothers and sisters. I say this in 100% broken humility, in fear before God. Follow me as I follow him. I know the significance of this moment. And I'm not shirking my responsibility. I'm not going into it with some false bravado or Male ego, I'm sitting here saying the power of the resurrection is alive in me. I can see that we are serving the one who said, Lazarus, come forth. We are serving the one who has it all under control, who is the sovereign one of the universe. We don't have time to get down and depressed and in the dumps and worrying. This has gone way beyond politics and Joe Biden and Donald Trump. This is about the kingdom of God. This is about good and evil. This is about truth and a lie. This is about heaven or hell. We win. Number six, you do these things in a liminal situation, you will experience the God life. How many of you want to experience more of God? Come on, how many of you are hungry? You sense the urgency to press in. Come on, how many of you? You want to experience more of God, his kingdom. You want it to flow through you. You want to be a world-changing agent. Now, I'm going to give you a bunch of scriptures that we don't talk about much in the American church, but they are critical for us. Our Christian experience calls for the liminality that a cross will bring. Matthew 10, if you refuse to take up your cross and follow me, you are not worthy of being mine. If you cling to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for me, you will find it. Chapter 16, and then Jesus said to his disciples, if, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. Jesus gave his followers full warning of what was to come. Matthew 5, verse 11, God blesses you when people mock you and persecute you and lie about you and say all sorts of evil things against you because you are my followers. Be happy about it, the New Living Translation says. How many of you find that difficult? Let's just be honest. How many of you know that is just not going to be on my refrigerator tomorrow morning? <laughs> Maybe it should be. Because it's either the truth or it's not. I think we all agree it's the truth. Be happy about it. Be very glad for a great reward awaits you in heaven. And remember, the ancient prophets were persecuted in the same way. Look at what Luke 21 says. Then he added, nation will go to war against nation, kingdom against kingdom, there will be great earthquakes and there will be famines and plagues in many lands and there will be terrifying things and great miraculous signs from heavens, from the heaven. But before all this occurs, there will be a time of great persecution. 
You will be dragged into the synagogues and prisons, and you will stand trial before kings and governors because you are my followers. But this will be your opportunity to tell them about me. So don't worry in advance about how to answer the charges against you. For I will give you the right words and such wisdom that none of your opponents will be able to reply or refute you. John 12, those who love their life in this world will lose it. Those who care nothing for their life in this world will keep it for eternity. John 16, I have told you all of this so that you may have peace in me. Here on earth you will have many trials and sorrows, but take heart because I have overcome the world. Brothers and sisters, liminality is locked into the equation from the very beginning so that you stay alive. We need crisis. We need to be stretched. We need apparent defeats because it forces us to have a holy urgency. We are people as brothers and sisters, as Christian people, we are people who have died to our own agenda. We belong to Jesus and his cause. 1 Corinthians 6 says, don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You do not belong to yourself. For God bought you with a high price, so you must honor God with your body. We are his servants. Romans 6 says, when you were slaves to sin, you were free from the obligation to do right. And what was the result? You are now ashamed of the things you used to do, things that end in eternal doom. But now you are free from the power of sin and have become slaves of God. Now you do those things that lead to holiness and result in eternal life. Did y'all realize I am still in the Bible? Everybody with me? How many of you know I'm still in the Bible? This is, this is not okay stuff. This is the good stuff. Not only that, we are his ambassadors, 2 Corinthians 5. So we are Christ's ambassadors. God, God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. And we run this race in such a way as to win and get the prize. 1 Corinthians 9, 24. Don't you realize that in a race everyone runs but only one person gets the prize? So run to win. Oh, I wish somebody was awake this morning. And we prepare ourselves for our calling with the discipline of a soldier. 2 Timothy chapter 2. Endure suffering along with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Soldiers don't get tied up in the affairs of civilian life, for they cannot please the officer who enlisted them. For then they cannot please the officer who enlisted them. In short, you know what I just read? A bunch of verses that say, he is the Lord. We are not in control, but he is. Do you know God embraced liminality when he sent Jesus? In Philippians chapter 2, let me, let me remind you, the Bible says he made himself nothing. It's the greatest miracle in the, in the scriptures that God could make himself nothing. He took the nature of a servant, not the role or the title or the position the nature of a servant. God took an amazing risk in an, a liminal situation where his plan for salvation was left in the hands of people like you and me. I'm coming to a close in just a few minutes. Let me read this from page 36. It seems correct to say that God took something of a risk in handing over his mission to the all too sinful human beings who were the original disciples and all the sinful disciples beyond them. We wonder what Jesus must have been thinking on the cross when all but a few powerless women had completely abandoned him. Did he wonder if love 
was enough to draw the men back into discipleship. The non-coercive, non-forced love of the cross necessitated a genuinely human response of willing obedience from his disciples. Given our predispositions to rebellion and idolatry, it is entirely conceivable that history could have gone in a completely different, indeed totally disastrous direction if the original disciples hadn't plucked up the internal courage to follow Jesus no matter where. They took on the adventure of discipleship in response to the risky love that God had bestowed upon them in Jesus. There were no risk-free scenarios here, no guarantees that they would make the right choices. If this is not the case, then we are not human precisely at the point where we must be most completely human in freely offering our lives back to God in love and adoration. This assumes that it might not have been so or else the choice for Jesus is no choice at all. Now, I was thinking today about the era that we're about to enter into. And if I were to stand up here and try and give you a picture of what it's going to look like, I would not be true. I would not be true to what I believe the Holy Spirit is wanting to say to us as his people. And I know there's a lot of false hope dealers and false hope dispensers right now. And I'm not doom and gloom. We are victorious one way or another. But I was awakened this morning and reminded that the largest church of God in our denomination is in Surabaya, Indonesia, a Muslim country that is 87% Muslim. And this church started in 1977 with the pastor's family and seven other people is now 140,000 people strong. And I thought, God, what would it be if your plan is to bring about a holy urgency, a divine tension that looks like apparent defeat for the Christians in America? Could it be that the remnant churches who worship you like you all did earlier who have men and women who will declare the word of God and challenge the comfortable to rise up, to be people of faith. Could it be that there is an enormous move of God's spirit like we've never seen? Hundred and forty thousand. And then I'm made aware of our churches in China who have been forced underground. By the way, the church in Surabaya, Indonesia has lost 32 pastors to COVID in the last year. And it flourishes because the average man and the woman on the pew are leading small group studies two and three days a week. And the church in Iran, yes, Iran, over 50% of the pastors are women. And it's growing and spreading faster than COVID virus is. Now let's go back and close as we talk about good old Abraham. Wow, Lord Jesus, you read Genesis 12, Pastor Chuck, and I thought this was gonna be a good sermon. I'm ready to quit now. Well, remember the promise that God said to Abraham? He said this, leave 
I'm gonna make your name great. I'm gonna make you into a nation and I'm going to bless you. And everybody that blesses you, I'm gonna bless them. And those that don't bless you, I'm going to curse them. How many of you know that's a great blessing? And we're the seed of Abraham, according to Galatians chapter three. The promise that God made to Abraham is a promise, a template for us to receive. Okay, that's Genesis one, two, and three. Do you know what verse six says? That when he got to the land, the place, the place that God said, this is it. You know what it, verse six says? There were Canaanites in the land, the most savage, barbaric people of the day. How many of you know God sometimes just misses it? <laughs> verse 10, we're still in Genesis 12. Verse 10 says, and there was a famine, a great famine in the land. God, what are you doing? Abraham, I'm making your name great. Your name can't be great until you know me. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Praise you, Lord. So, Father, we just... We make ourselves available to you. We don't know what this week holds, but we trust you. And we're not going to superimpose what we want. We want what you want. Sometimes we think we know what you want and what you should want, and we do. And sometimes we think we do, but we don't. And so we say, Whatever you're doing, we trust you. Your word is true. And therefore, we will be filled with hope. We will take up our cross because we've learned it's in saving my life I lose it. But in losing it, I gain a real life. I trust you with it all, with my children, with Candace, with this church, my finances, and my health. I trust you, Lord. Oh God, reveal your sovereignty to your people. That this is not some feel good, hope so, whimsical, emotional, Sunday morning, come on, hang in there. This is the truth. We worship the only living God. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Look at me, brothers and sisters. We're getting ready to sing a great song. But listen, the battle hymn of the Republic is a song that it has been debated and both sides of the Civil War sang the song. I find that interesting because they had different spiritual convictions. But the beauty is his truth prevailed. The beauty is what they sang came true. This song started out it was sung in football anthems. College football teams took its tune and wrote their own alma mater. Martin Luther King Jr., the day before he was assassinated, quoted from the first line. Man, I just, are y'all okay, everybody out there? Anybody glad you came to church this morning? I. I, I just had a fever for 11 straight days. I, I'm not good being sick. I eat too healthy and live right. and I, I'm just, I'm not good sick. And COVID, it, it's not like for me, it, it wasn't like 
really sick. I mean, I've been way more sick. I've just never been sick for that long. I'm too young to have a fever for 11 stinking days. And then COVID is more than a sickness, brothers and sisters. Listen to me. There's a COVID brain fog. I couldn't read my Bible for two weeks. It is, it is no ordinary virus. It's a virus. But I can tell you, each day I'm like, I'm getting better, am I not? Am I getting better? We check my temperature. And it wasn't like 102 or 103 or, it was ever, like two or three times it was over 100. But 99.5 ain't normal. And you're contagious. And you're locked in, quarantined. It's a, it's a sickness from hell. All sickness is. And Wednesday I said, to, honey, I was like, let's walk the dogs. <gasps> Thursday I was like, let's do it again. And I was like, I was like, wait. If, if you've had COVID, you can't do that. You can't do that without coughing. It's like, oh my Lord, something came over me. The love of God, I'm not, I'm not putting on, the love of God came over me and I'm like, I'm better. I got my life back. And the Amazon guy pulls in the driveway and he's got a different color skin on. And I can't help but just love on him. I'm like, hey man, thank you for bringing this package. You are so awesome. There is not another Amazon driver in all of North Georgia as good as you. Do you mind if I hug you, man? I'm, we're walking the dogs and people, I can't help, there's something came over me. Honestly, we're in our neighborhood. We live out on a country road. And I'm like, people, I get to love people. I get to be light. I get to encourage people. I get to prove not every white conservative preacher is a racist. I get to speak life over people. I get to live again. You may not understand what I'm sharing. But hear me, with my breath, I'm going to worship him. I'm going to tell everybody I know and most people I don't know, God loves you. There is hope. America is not perfect, but she's getting better. She never was perfect, but most people on the whole planet are trying to get here. And we need to fight for what we have here. And we will fight by worshiping, by praying, by becoming ambassadors, bearers of light and love and the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Come on, somebody, stand to your feet. Come on, we praise you, Lord. And so we sing this old song saying we're not presupposing our prejudices, our wants, our desires. We are saying to you, Father God, may your truth, the person of Jesus, keep marching on. We praise you, Lord. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. He hath loosed the faithful light of his terrible swift soul. His truth is marching home. Have read his fiery gospel, written rows of burnished steel as he did. Condemner, so with you my grace shall deal. Let the hero born. Come on, that's Jesus. With his heel, since God is. 
truth as Dean sings this. In the beauty of the lilies, Christ was born across the sea. Jesus. Praise your name, Lord. Wow. Mm. We praise you, Lord. I pray your protection over this body of believers. Pray, according to Isaiah chapter 4, verse 5, that you would set your glory over every dwelling place, every residence, every kitchen, living room, our cars, protect our children, reveal yourself to them, send revival to our church, your church, make us an army of believers who love like you love, touch our hearts with a fiery, passionate love that comes from you. May we be men and women of faith 
who bring life and joy and light everywhere we go. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Brothers and sisters, may the Lord bless you, keep you, make his face shine upon you, be gracious unto you. May he lift up his countenance and give you peace in Jesus' name. How many of you say, I receive it in Jesus' name? Come on, one more time. If you love the Lord, let's express our gratitude to him, our thanks to him. Hallelujah. Amen. Have a wonderful afternoon, a great week, and we hope to see many of you. There are a lot of classes this Wednesday night, some great opportunities for you to get involved in men's and women's Bible studies. Lots of good opportunities. Turn and tell somebody, you look better every time I see you.